Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian reading old books in the hopes that they'll be rude. Too often my hopes are dashed, but I'm always optimistic that filth is just around the corner. If you want to support the show, check out the links in the episode notes. There's Patreon and merch and all sorts of ways to declare your appreciation for the podcast. All very much appreciated. So this is the weirdest episode I've done so far because we're talking about a book published in 1989 that was referred to the censors in 2013. I cannot believe I'm talking about eight years ago, but that's how mental this censorship shit is. Laura by Alan Shatter was a bestseller in 1989. It shot straight to the top of the Irish published books list and a second printing was immediately ordered. Like lots of bestsellers, it was quickly read and quickly forgotten. It just didn't become part of reading culture. Fast forward to 2013 and a formal complaint was made to the censorship board that Laura was indecent and or obscene. Much hilarity ensued because there was no longer actually a board. The term of the last one had expired in November 2011. The last time they had censored a publication was in 2003. To make it even funnier, Alan Shatter was the serving Minister for Justice and the censorship board was under his own department's control. Politicians sniggered in the doil. Journalists wrote articles explaining the plot of a novel from 24 years earlier and we all, myself included, had a great laugh. After all, the entire woeful trilogy of Fifty Shades of Fucking Grey had been published and read since 2011. What could be funnier than trying to censor a bestseller from 1989 in a society where the Red Room was now like a catchphrase? But since I've researched this episode, I've decided that this whole malarkey was absolutely bonkers and none of us noticed it. If I had to choose a drink to match the book, I'd say wine. Two of the main characters are a perfect suburban couple who drink wine in their property supplement dream home. But there's also a lot of consolatory tea in moments of emotional stress, so I'm definitely drinking tea to get me through the controversy of 2013. This entire carry-on demands a cool head, and tea is your only man for that. Normally I ask, why was this book banned? But thankfully in this case, that's a silly question. 
the censorship board refused to ban it. So instead, I'm going to ask two other questions. Why wasn't it controversial in 1989? And why the hell was it referred to the censors in 2013? But first, a very brief plot summary of Laura. My edition has the tagline, a best-selling novel about adoption on the front cover. And this is the blurb from the back. Laura is placed with adopters after her unmarried mother, Colette James, has been abandoned by Laura's father, Sean Brannigan, TD. To her adopters, John and Jenny Masterson, Laura is their daughter and they love her dearly. Their world is turned upside down when they learn that Colette has changed her mind and wants Laura back. This novel, full of compassion, anguish and suspense, relates the drama of the fight for Laura's future. Terribly factual blurb, isn't it? Doesn't sound very emotionally gripping. Now, at the moment, adoption and the rights of everyone involved is big news in Ireland, so it seems like an appropriate novel to read just now. And I did read it, all of it, though it wasn't very good as a work of fiction goes. This is probably because Alan Shatter is a solicitor as well as a politician, and he specialises in family law. In fact, he's actually written the textbook, the main textbook on family law. It might be best to think of this novel as an exploration of legal dilemmas dressed up in fiction. Some speculate that one of the solicitor characters in the book can be read as a version of Shatter himself. And because he was a serving TD when he wrote it, people did speculate if the unfaithful politician dude was based on real life. Shatter coyly claimed that it was all fiction. Now, there is some sex in it, and I suppose I should read it out, though you can find it all over the internet, because when this news broke in 2013, Irish news sites reproduced bits from the book with great glee. So this is the most explicit sex scene in the whole book. Her inexperienced hands touched him so tentatively that every muscle in his body ached for fulfilment. When he entered her, he knew it was her first time. He moved slowly and she dug her fingers into his back, moaning and gasping for breath. When she loosened her grip and her body relaxed, he knew he was going to erupt. She gasped again as he pulled himself free of her and overflowed on her slender body. They were lying on the carpeted floor of his office. It was almost midnight and, except for the Gordy at the entrance gates, Leinster House was deserted. Oh my God. Okay, that was extremely difficult to read without breaking down laughing every five seconds. That was so, so, so bad. Who needs cold showers when you can just think of office carpets in Leinster House? Oh. Even by 1989 standards, this was pretty mild. Julie Cooper's Riders, which was a real bonk buster, was published in 1985 and it was everywhere in the late 80s and early 90s. I read it in my early teens when my mother brought a copy into the house. Sadly, I no longer own it, so I can't read out sex scenes from it, apart from what journalists have put in their articles. And here is a particularly memorable line. Now he was lifting her right leg, holding back the inside of her thigh. It was like an express train going into a tunnel. <laughs> sex in Jilly Cooper is always very funny. I know Caitlin Moran writes extensively about Julie Cooper's role in her teenage sexual awakening, but as a teenager, I found Cooper more entertaining than sexy. She wrote gripping stories that galloped along for hundreds and hundreds of pages. They were great. 
Now, seeing as we were all reading uncensored Jilly Cooper in the late 80s, Alan Shatter's rather tame sex scene could hardly qualify as rude. And by 2013, it was absolutely passé. I'm going to change the usual running order just a bit here because I'm going to do censorship bingo now. It makes more sense, really, to work out just how rude the book is right now. And I do love censorship bingo, so why wait till the end? So let's look at the first line of the bingo card in relation to Alan Shatter's Laura. Well, there are no breasts, no bestiality, no sex work, racism or drugs. So that's zero so far. On the second line, we start with politics. Yes, absolutely, it really is all about the political situation and the pro-life dimension within Irish politics. But there's no swearing at all. It's very polite. Infidelity is the next one. And yes, one of the characters is cheating on his wife. There's no crime. There's no genitalia. But there is a discussion about abortion. So we have to tick that one. Thankfully, no orgies. I can only imagine how awful they would read. No sexual assault. But yes, extramarital pregnancy is really the driving plot force. On the next line, there's no masturbation, sex toys, feminism, divorce. But there is contraception, or at least an allusion to the fact that it does exist. Nobody uses it, of course. And finally, on the last line, there's no menstruation, blasphemy, oral sex, graphic violence or queer content. So Alan Shatter's Laura scores a measly 5 out of 25. The only boxes ticked were politics, infidelity, abortion, extramarital pregnancy and contraception. Similarly low scores are found in books from before the 1960s, especially from around the 1940s. So this really is not rude. I double-checked the reviews from 1989 and its sexual content wasn't even part of the newspaper coverage. Now, to be honest, I was surprised that the political content wasn't more controversial in 1989. The father of Laura is a TD with a strong pro-life agenda, but when confronted with his pregnant girlfriend, he suggests she have an abortion. The toxic abortion wars were rumbling on when the book was published. In 1983, the Irish people had voted to insert a prohibition on abortion into the Constitution. It's no exaggeration to say the referendum opened a nasty debate that went on for 35 fucking years until 2018 when that decision was reversed. If you do want to hear a contemporary politician recall the 83 referendum, a recent Irish Times women's podcast with Gemma Hussey is well worth a listen. It was fucking grim, lads. The hate mail was bad enough to be referred to the guards. So it was interesting that just a few years later, the abortion aspect of Shatter's novel made no waves at all in the reviews. There was no outrage. We can say one good thing about Ireland in 1989. A book insulting pro-lifers was not banned. Of course, it could have been complained to the board. I don't know for sure. But it seems that by this time, Irish politics and society could deal with fictional depictions like this. So Ireland is a proper democracy where artistic freedom did not depend on the political climate. Yay, I guess. I think we can all agree that this book was not considered rude or challenging even in the dim and distant past of 1989. What on earth could have changed in 2013 that someone decided this book was rude? 
In terms of public tolerance of sexuality, you could say that we were much more liberal. Queer storylines were fairly commonplace on the telly, slagging off the Catholic Church was practically mandatory, and extramarital pregnancy didn't even raise an eyebrow. Out of all the topics in Alan Shatter's book, only abortion was still difficult. And it was seriously controversial. The death of Savita Halepanarver in 2012 had brought the whole thing back into politics again. Savita died because her fetus had a heartbeat and her miscarrying pregnancy could not be terminated, even when she began to develop symptoms of sepsis. In other medical systems, her inevitable miscarriage would have been accelerated, but not in Ireland, where a fetal heartbeat was more important than her health. There was huge anger and grief over her death, which convinced some politicians that there was public support for change around the abortion issue. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But any attempt to talk about amending the constitutional ban on abortion was met with a furious backlash from the pro-life brigade. The Taoiseach, Enda Kenny, got letters telling him his soul was in danger if he even thought about changing the status quo. When Laura was complained to the censors, Alan Shatter was a member of a government that was re-examining the absolute ban on abortion. In 2013, that government legislated that abortion was not illegal, if it was the result of a medical intervention to save a pregnant woman's life. This was supposed to prevent any more women dying in the way Savita Halepanavar did. So it is possible that an anti-abortion activist complained about Laura because it featured a character advocating abortion. This was actually illegal under the Censorship Acts, so there was grounds in the legislation. Unfortunately, we have to wait till 2039 to check if those files made it to the National Archives or not. So let's keep guessing about the motives of this random prude from 2013. While an anti-abortion activist is pretty likely, 
there's another much more personal and much nastier explanation. It's anti-Semitism. Alan Shatter is Jewish and had, since the mid-2000s, been complaining about anti-Semitic abuse. I remember hearing about this at the time and thinking, and thinking, A, I did not know he was Jewish, and B, why are people bothered by that? But hate is irrational and addictive, so it shouldn't really surprise me. I also remember that whenever Shatter and others brought up anti-Semitism, the general response was that they were overreacting. After all, politicians get a lot of abuse from the public, and some of it is personal and nasty. In addition, Shatter wasn't very popular as a TD, partly because he wasn't very interested in being liked. Shatter is a clever, ambitious, hard-working man who doesn't cover his achievements in false modesty. He's either extremely ballsy or entirely unconscious of the social rules. Either way, his unlikability made it hard for people to sympathise with his complaints about anti-Semitism. But when Shatter became Minister for Justice in 2011, the abuse finally became newsworthy. After he spoke at Holocaust Memorial Day events, there were spikes in hate speech, when radio chat shows got texts saying that he should go back to where he came from, presumably meaning Israel. He joked that he didn't think the suburb where he grew up, Rathgar, Dublin, would have him back. Then there was a bomb hoax, when a packet containing white powder and a photo of Nazis was sent to his home in April 2014. Threatening anti-Semitic material was also sent to the Department of Justice. A man was later convicted in court for sending abusive anti-Semitic emails in 2014 to Alan Shatter. And I think it's worth quoting what he said about these nasty emails at the time. Quote, For any Jewish person to receive this is upsetting. When it is persistent and ongoing, you do not know what the next step will be for this person. All this is in the back of your mind when you receive this stuff. Unquote. Naturally, he felt threatened by the emails, letters and fake bombs. Given they were anti-Semitic, he must have worried that hate speech would turn into violence. Now, it never did, thankfully. But there was a lot of casual anti-Semitism that we all kind of ignored at the time. One I will never forget was the depiction of Shatter on a political satire on RT Radio. The minister was styled Count Shatter, as in Count Dracula the Vampire, and given a slightly Eastern European accent. This gave me the creeps, but not because I'm scared of vampires. Jews as vampires is a very old idea, coming from the blood libel where it was falsely believed that Jews kidnapped Christian children and drained their blood to celebrate the Passover. An echo of this survives in language that casts Jews as leeches on the financial system, draining the riches of everyone else to benefit themselves. It's ugly shit. And that's why Count Shatter was not funny. Now I'm sure the satirist would say he was just messing. If he was being very honest, he might admit he got inspiration from a British show that characterised a Tory minister, Michael Howard, as Dracula around the same time. Thing is, Michael Howard is also Jewish, so that's still pretty gross. Either way, I think the fact that none of us challenged these anti-Semitic tropes says a lot. Whoever complained about Shatter's book in 2013 could just as likely have been motivated by anti-Semitism as pro-life fanaticism.
While the motives for complaining Laura were definitely ugly and personal, the consequences of the complaint were pretty silly. Because the censorship board was under Shatter's department, he had to transfer it to another department to avoid a conflict of interest. So in June 2013, the government made a statutory order to give censorship over to the Department of Arts, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. A new board was then appointed and they met in April 2014 to sit in judgment over Alan Shatter's novel. Funnily enough, there was another book that had been referred to the board and you're not going to fucking believe what it was. It was a children's book called St. Anthony of Padua and the publisher was the Catholic Truth Society. Yeah, the Catholic Truth Society, who had been involved at the very beginning of censorship. And it's a children's book as well. It's hilarious. This is 100% someone taking the piss. For definite. The only question I have is, why Saint Anthony? Were they hoping that the patron saint of lost things would help the board find their common sense? That the government had to rejuggle jurisdictions and re-found a censorship board just because someone sent in a cranky letter tells me something really interesting about Irish censorship. The Censorship Act was a cranks charter, open to abuse by mentalists determined to take offence or score political points. It's obvious at this late stage in the history of censorship how easy it was for the cranks to manipulate the system. Both Alan Shatter and St. Anthony of Padua were targets of spite or point scoring in 2013. Unsurprisingly, the board rejected both complaints and both Laura and St. Anthony were unmolested. Then, and this is where it's very silly, the government passed another statutory order moving the censorship board back to the Department of Justice. Fucking hell, talk about a lot of paperwork. It was just farcical. And this was the last censorship board that was ever appointed in the state, so far at least. This board met just three more times before its term expired, and it considered three publications. In 2014, it refused to censor The Weekly Sport, a British tabloid that featured big tits on the front cover. Mostly covered tits, like no actual nipples on display. This complaint is pretty bizarre because Page Three Girls had been tits out in the tabloids for decades by this time. In 2015, the board dismissed a complaint against something called Flat Pack Feminism, which seems to have been a pamphlet from an art exhibition by Siobhan Clancy about abortion rights. At least, I think that's what they're talking about. I can't be 100% sure. And finally, in 2016, it did ban a book, the last book ever banned in Ireland, so far. It was called The Raped Little Runaway, and it sounds pretty disgusting. A man was actually brought to court for having this book in his home, but he was charged under the Child Trafficking and Pornography Act. Because legislation like that had made the Censorship Act pretty obsolete by 2016. Now you'd think this carry-on over Alan Shatter's Laura and the obvious abuse of censorship by people trying to make a point would convince the government to repeal the act altogether. You'd be wrong, I'm afraid. They decided it was too complicated to do that. Probably because it was just too much work. 
The distribution of information about abortion and contraception involves a lot of law and much of it rests on the Censorship of Publications Act because it's one of the earlier ones. So I suppose they just couldn't be arsed changing all the bits. Today, the power to censor publications remains in the hands of the state. But there's no board at the moment. It's been mothballed, and in fact it's been rolled into the Censorship of Films office, which is still working. But all it takes is one cranky letter to revive it, so if anyone wants to complain out of sheer badness, work away. Of course, it's all very funny now, because it doesn't matter. But politicians in 1929 thought the censorship law wouldn't be used that often. The effects of legislation aren't always predictable. And that's the tale of Alan Shatter's Laura, a novel I can't recommend for literary reasons. It's well worth the read if the vexed question of adoption interests you, and the controversy around it in 2013 tells us a lot about Ireland. But the book itself won't win any awards. Because of all the censorship fuss, it was reprinted in 2013. So it's a good example of accusations of filth driving sales. I'm sure those readers were deeply disappointed when they read about sex on an office carpet. Those journalists who in 2013 called Laura steamy, it was obvious they hadn't read any of it. Anyway, next time the book I'm reading was actually banned. Margaret Mead's Growing Up in Samoa was published in 1928 and couldn't be more different to Shatter's Laura. It was a popular anthropology text about teenage girls and their carry-on in a village in American Samoa. I really hope it's as salacious as it sounds. Till then, don't buy any banned books without checking out the censorship bingo score first. You don't want to waste your money. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.